You see, love is not hoping to condemn somebody. Love is not hoping they get what they deserve. Love covers a multitude of sins. Love desires to see that which is broken be restored, that which is wrong be healed. Love desires what is best for the other. Hi, this is Chris from The Point, a church where you can come as you are and you can text in your questions. You may not be sure what you believe about God, Jesus, faith, or the Bible, and that's okay because faith is not about having it all figured out and God is not waiting for you to put your life together before he'll connect with you. If you'd like to find out more about The Point, you can visit our website at thepointknox.com or connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at The Point Knox. Don't hesitate to contact us or join us in person every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. We pray this message has an impact in your life or at least makes it easy for you to connect with God where you are. You guys ever been there? You see what's wrong with somebody else, it's blatantly obvious, it's staring you in the face, and they just don't want to talk about it or address it or admit it. It's not about the nail, I just wish you would listen to me. In this series of being let down, we've focused on the reality that first and foremost, you and I, we will let ourselves down. When we say in this place, it's okay to not be okay, what we're saying is, if you are imperfect, if your life isn't all put together, if even your drive coming to church wasn't all put together, that's okay. Give yourself this grace to say, you don't need to be perfect and try harder and do better. Jesus is enough. And then we talked about this reality that not only will you let yourself down, other people will let you down. Because people stink. Deal with it. People will do the wrong thing when you want them to do the right thing. And they will cause you pain and hurt you no matter how much you love them. Well, today we're talking about not just giving grace to people who let you down over and over again. What happens when you see something so blatantly obvious that is causing somebody else pain and they don't want to talk about it? They don't want to address it. They don't want to find healing. They would rather hide or ignore or dismiss the pain and find something or someone to blame then do the hard work of changing. See, in this place, when we believe that you and I are inherently broken and other people are inherently broken, we say to that, come as you are. Jesus isn't waiting for you to fix all of your brokenness. He's not waiting for you to get it right or stop doing that thing you've been doing. He's not expecting you to be better. Jesus didn't die so that bad people could become good people. He died so that dead people could come alive. And you and I, no matter how hard we try, will get it right every time. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't aim for growth. So what we say in this place is come as you are and become who you are. That is to say you and I all fall short of who God made us to be. And not in this pressure, you need to fix it and change it, but rather this invitation. God has something better for you. God wants you to experience more of his peace, 
and his joy and his life than you're currently experiencing. And this is true if you just for the first time came to know who Jesus is or if you've been walking with him your entire life. None of us will ever get to the place where in this life here and now we are perfect, where we no longer have room to grow. And so we believe God invites you to come as you are and then as you walk with him and you experience him to begin to be changed into somebody new. And it's not our job to try and change you or fix you or point out all the nails in your head that are causing your sweaters to be snagged. It's not our job to find your problems for you. And yet, how often do we take on that task in the name of love? How often do we see somebody who's dealing with depression and we give them all the tips and all the things they need to be less depressed? We see somebody going through addiction and we say, well, just stop. Let me help you stop. How often do we try to help those who are hurting and they don't want it? But even more so, how often do we not want it? See, it's really easy to see the problem somebody else is walking through and see just how massive of a problem that is. But what about our own problems that should maybe be changed first. Jesus, he talks about this. He tells a story. He says, look, before you try to remove the speck in your brother's eye, first take the log out of your own eye. And then you can go to him and help him remove the speck. See, far too often when we see people with that glaringly obvious pain and problem, we jump not into let me love you, Or what's wrong with me? Where have I wronged you? Or how have I aided this problem? Instead, we jump into, let me tell you what you need to know. And we see this on our social media, just trying to convince other people that they're wrong and we're right. We see this in our conversations with our our spouses. It's your fault the house is a mess. You're the reason our money's a mess. You're the problem all the time. And so we try to fix other people. And there's a truth that is really hard to walk. You and I have no power to change other people. Not even the slightest. It doesn't matter if they're your children or your spouse or your boss or your neighbor. We cannot change a single person. And yet so often we try. If only you see the things I see, then your life would look different. If only you parented the way I parent. Anybody in here not have kids? Cool. Let me tell you, before I had kids, I was the perfect parent. Like, I would go to the store and the restaurant, and I would see all the kids acting up. Like, well, if I was their parent, I would discipline them, let me tell you. I certainly wouldn't yell at them or spank them or do this or do that. I would know exactly what to do in that situation. Anybody in here have kids? Anybody have a clue what you're doing? Every single one of us is a perfect parent until we become a parent. And then it's quite apparent that we have no idea what we're doing. And if only somebody would have told us before just how hard this could be. And it's really easy for us to think that maybe I have the right wisdom or understanding or experience. Maybe I can do something 
to help. Sometimes that's motivated by love. Other times, it's really just pride. I think my way is better and my understanding is best. And if they just saw what I saw, I could take that nail out of their forehead and life would be better. So today, as we talk about being let down, what do we do when we're let down by people who don't want to change or who refuse to change or even people who want to change and can't? They still seem stuck in these patterns and habits that are hurtful to them and in turn hurtful to you. What do we do when we're let down by that? Now we're going to get to how we respond to those who won't change or can't change by actually looking at a story of a man who does change. I know, kind of backwards, but you should be used to that by now. I'm not always the way you would expect. There's something wrong with me, I'm sure. We're going to look at a man who was absolutely a terrible, horrible man. And yet, he's a man that now we, 3,000 years later, praise and celebrate as a great man. This is a man who used his power and his authority to manipulate, abuse, and rape an otherwise righteous woman. And rather than accept responsibility for it, he covers it up by killing her husband. What a great guy, right? Of course, if you know much about the Bible, you might know who I'm talking about, a guy named David. We're going to look at 2 Samuel chapter 12 and this moment where David is confronted with his sin and challenged, what you've done was wrong and you need to repent. Certainly I think every one of us would agree that using your authority to manipulate and abuse somebody else and then murder to cover it up, we'd all agree that's wrong, right? But David didn't see anything wrong with it. For David, he was just covering his tracks. For David, he just saw it as his right as a king to do what he pleased. Who could challenge him and tell him otherwise? So a man named Nathan comes to David. Nathan is a dear friend. He's also a prophet, one who speaks on behalf of God. He says, this is what God is saying. Anybody ever have somebody come up to you and say, thus says the Lord, let me tell you. How are you going to respond? I've experienced that a few times. I had one person say, I believe God's telling us we're supposed to get married. Cool. I think he'll tell me that too if that's true, right? Like, sometimes people like to use the idea of God says this as a way to act like they have control or authority or some kind of secret wisdom. Rule number one when trying to help somebody who needs to change, don't think you're any better than them. Don't think that you have all the answers more than them because you and I don't. Nathan, he comes to David and he comes in a really clever, cunning way. Here's what he says. Not that. <laughs> and the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb 
which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Nathan begins challenging David with this story. There were once two people. One had everything and one had only this little lamb, nothing else. And when faced with the need to show hospitality, to greet your guests, the rich man who had everything at his disposal instead chooses to take the one thing this poor man had, to take it and kill it, that he didn't have to lose out but could still show hospitality. David, as king, he hears this story and he's livid, as you can maybe imagine. How dare that man do such a heinous thing? Continues. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Which in some translation says he had no compassion. Nathan tells this story of this man who takes advantage of somebody else, who hurts and sins somebody else, sins against them. And David is indignant, how dare he? I hope he dies. See, it's really easy when we think that sin is about somebody else's problem to wish for really severe consequences. I hope they get what's coming to them. I hope they know just how bad they are. I hope, and we have all sorts of things. We wish for people who have wronged us or continue to do wrong things. David, he's indignant, and rightly so. See, the Lord cares greatly about those who've been oppressed. All throughout this story, from beginning to end, God almost always is on the side of the oppressed and not the oppressor. And almost always is on the side of those who have little or nothing. And somebody else takes it from them. David, he is indignant. How dare he? And Nathan said to David, You are the man. Could you imagine being in that room? That moment where David is confronted with the weight of what he's done? You did this. Oftentimes, we don't like con conflict, and confrontation makes us really uncomfortable. When it comes to the sin other people may be walking in, first, we need to recognize we are no better than them. And second, we need to be bold to speak the truth. And yet the truth we need to speak has to be covered in love, a love that is not here to condemn and say, how terrible. A love that is not here to say, you really are the worst of people. But a love that hopes for the best. 
It says in the New Testament that we should speak the truth in love. And I think today most of us, myself included, are either really quick to speak the truth in the name of love, but not actually in love, or we're really comfortable in the name of love not speaking the truth, and we're like, God will work that out eventually. But I think neither of those are faithful to speaking the truth in love. You see, love is not hoping to condemn somebody. Love is not hoping they get what they deserve. Love covers a multitude of sins. Love desires to see that which is broken be restored, that which is wrong be healed. Love desires what is best for the other. Nathan, he shares this story, and David is indignant. And it's only when he realizes what this story is actually about that things change. It says this, You are the man, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. You shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. Could you imagine having that conversation? First off, Nathan's like, look, you did this terrible thing. And then he follows it with, and this is what God's going to do. He's going to come against you in judgment. God literally gave you everything. And this is how you would return the favor. This is how you would act. And he speaks this judgment to, to David. Your family is going to be divided. Your wives will be taken from you. As the story continues, that does happen. His own children rise up against him and rebel against him and create war and division and then he witnesses their death and mourns. See, when it comes to other people changing, something we have to recognize is change doesn't always come without pain. In fact, most of the time, change comes through pain. Now, I don't want you to leave here and take away that it's your job to go and inflict pain on people who need change. That's not the case. But when it is God who is moving and God who is speaking, it will hurt to rip away the band-aid that's covering up that pain and that brokenness and that sin. It will be difficult to say no to the things you've said yes to, to seek a community that can support you and encourage you. And not only this, our actions, whether we like them or not, will have consequences. Now, 
I have to say, just as an aside, I don't know when or if God is judging you. And anybody who says, well, you're dealing with this because of that, be really cautious to listen to them. See, outside of what God has written in in Scripture, I cannot declare this is his judgment or not. Because sometimes bad things happen simply because we live in a bad world. And sometimes they happen because of the things we do. So if you choose to drink excessively and then drive and you crash, you might be held accountable for that accident. If you choose to give yourself over to an addiction, which I understand is a mental health problem and it's more than a choice and sometimes you're stuck there, but if you don't seek help, your life might unravel. That's a natural reality of these choices we make. If you choose to fill your mind with pornography, your marriage might suffer. See, whatever you fill your time with will have consequences. So I'm not going to stand here and say that the pain you feel in change is God's judgment. Because I don't know. But I do know that very little change comes without pain. And our sinfulness rears its ugly head all the time. Nathan speaks this pain over David. He convicts David and says, what you've been doing is wrong, and this is what's going to happen. And David here has a choice to make. Will I reject this? Well, to heck with you, Nathan, I don't like that. Or you're wrong, God is loving, he would never do such a thing. Or you don't know me, don't try to change me, you can't control me. Fill in the blank with how we sometimes respond when God's trying to convict us. But instead, David responds like this in verse 13. I have sinned against the Lord. It's that simple. I have sinned against the Lord. See, when we are confronted with our sin, the only appropriate response is to confess, I've sinned. Nathan doesn't tell David, well, here's what you need to go and do to make it right. He doesn't tell David, here's how you need to fix it in the future. He simply challenges that sin, and David is cut to the heart. When it comes to other people who let us down, it's really tempting to want to be the one to fix it. But you know what? None of what Nathan said would have carried any weight if God wasn't working in David's heart to show David just how far he'd fallen, just how much he'd sinned. And David, he responds, I've sinned against God. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. I love that. The Lord has put away your sin. It says elsewhere in scripture, he's removed it as far as the east is from the west. He's taken our sin that was crimson and made it white as snow. He's cleansed us from that sin. 
If there's somebody in your life that has that nail in the forehead that needs to change something that is hurting them, it's quite possible God's calling you to speak into that, to encourage them there's something better for you. But you can only do that out of the place of recognizing you yourself are not better than them. Only out of the place of helping them see that what they did, sorry. I love allergy season. Only out of the place of helping them recognize that what they did was a sin against God. That the things they're doing are hurting them. It's only from that place of compassion that we can speak the truth. And as we speak the truth, if God does what we hope for him to do and people are cut to the core, it's not our job to rub it in and shame them and drive it further home. Of course, you miserable, terrible person, why would you do these things? It's only our job to remind them of what God has done. The Lord has removed this sin from you. You are forgiven. That's it. You are forgiven. When it comes to other people's sin, we have to look at our own first. That's why we started with how we need to give ourselves grace. You will fail, and others will fail you too. And only from this place of recognizing we're on the same page and equal footing before God can we go and freely forgive and also challenge and invite. There's something better for you than this life you're currently in. Can I help you find it? Can I show you what God is about and what he's doing? Now, unfortunately, what comes next is really uncomfortable to read. What I would love to happen next as I read scripture is David says, I've sinned, and Nathan says, you are forgiven, and then Nathan just wipes it all under the rug like nothing ever happened. But Nathan continues to speak of the reality of natural consequences. If you do this, sometimes this is the result. This is what David speaks, or what Nathan speaks. The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And then Nathan went home. Boom. Mic drop. That's it. Because of your sin, there will be problems that come next. Now, if you have lost a child, I will never, ever say that it is because of your sin that you lost a child. I don't know the answer to that. But what I do know is that our actions cause pain and hurt and sorrow. In fact, immediately next after this, David, uh, this, this woman, Bathsheba, she gives birth to a child who then gets sick. And David begins to weep, God have mercy, God forgive, God save this child. And he weeps and he weeps and he weeps and the child dies. And all of his servants are concerned, what do we say to David now? 
that the child has died. And they go in, and David sees them coming in and says, the child has died. They say, yes, yes, he has. And he wipes away his tears, and he gets up, and he praises God. How or why could he do that? Because when it comes to changing ourselves or others, the way in which God works is not always, in fact, often not at all, the way in which we hope he will. And God's ways are bigger than our ways, and sometimes they don't make any sense to me. But God is still God, and we are not. And so, when it comes to helping other people change, you'll be let down by the number of times they don't want to. They're convinced their way is the best way. And it's really easy to become begrudged against them and mad about them and even dismissive towards them. Well, that's just who they are and there's nothing I can do about that. And you're partially right. There is nothing you or I can do to change others. But what we can do is speak the truth in love. And if you're not sure how to speak the truth in love, just start by learning to love. And maybe, maybe out of that place of compassion for those who are hurting, maybe then God will give us the words and the timing and everything's right to say, let me show you a better way. Can I help you find healing? I love you. And ultimately, what I love about this story of David, because David repented, though he did a really heinous and horrible thing, and there were consequences for that action, because of his repentance, he's remembered throughout Scripture by the words of the Lord that David is a man after God's own heart. See, for every one of us, we will screw up there will be things blatantly obvious that we refuse to let God change. And yet, when we're confronted with them and we repent, that's the heart the Lord wants. Not one who has it all together and everything's right. So come as you are and become who God made you to be. Will you join me in prayer? God, we thank you that when it comes to changing other people, there's nothing we can do. God, we thank you that you have not made it our job to change others, to fix their mess, to take the nail out of their forehead. God, you have made it our job to love and out of a place of compassion and understanding of sin and pain and brokenness out of this place to speak the truth. God, we pray for those that are on our mind right now that we know are walking in pain and have not yet seen the light. God, help us to love them more, to speak the truth, to forgive them of their sins and to show them your grace. And God, whatever consequences they may be walking through, Help us to walk through those with them, to be beside them as their mess continues to unfold and unravel, to be with them through whatever may come next. 
to again, like Nathan, remind them that you have removed their sin. You do not hold it against them. May we be people who are okay with being let down that we might build others up. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we continue our worship today, we're going to collect an offering. And we collect an offering in this place as a way to join God in the work that he's doing and say we want to be a part of your work in helping change others. Not that we can do it, but we can create a safe space for people to be loved in not only this place, but as we go into our community and we serve out there. And so when we collect an offering, we collect this offering to say, God, use this money, whatever amount, however much, to show those who are hurting just how much they're loved as an act of trust and an act of partnering. If you prefer to give with cash and check, you can do so in the popcorn buckets on your way out. If you filled out one of those physical connect cards, you can put those in the buckets too. We'd love to pray with you. I'd love to go to coffee or lunch with you, but I can only do that if I have your number. So can I have it, please? Um, you, can, you can put that in the buckets. If you prefer to give online, you can do so at thepointknox.com by clicking the little teal button in the corner. However you give and whatever you give, know this, we don't give to get his love, but because we already have it. Thank you. All right, this is part of the service where you guys texted in questions, and uh, I get to do my best to respond. There are, there are hard questions today. Last week was kind of easy, Not so I was concerned lie. that was coming. I knew it was time. All right, so I'll start with the easy one. Oh, thank you. Shout out to the worship team. Thank you for leading us in praising Jesus. Thank you for whoever yeah. said that. That was really sweet. Also, I love that Jay plays like six instruments at once. Really makes me feel like I don't have a clue what I'm doing. <laughs> you and me both. All right. Um, okay, so now diving in. How is David's conviction or God's response bring any justice or peace to the victim? I don't know. Um, I've often thought about that, and I have no idea. Uh, and throughout history, Bathsheba is often referred to as this adulteress, and yet that's not what she's referred to in Scripture. She's always a victim in Scripture. So how is there any justice for her? Well, her son does go on to become king, so it's not really justice because you can't undo what happened to her. Um, but God does restore and elevate her to a place that was better than she was before. So I don't know. There's a lot of stories in Scripture that are really, really hard when you think about from the perspective of the victim. And that's one that I just have to say, God, I don't get this. As one who is a God of justice, what does that look like for her? I'll trust he figured it out. And I don't know. Um. Speaking of justice, with all the racism in the world today, when will it end? It will end when Jesus returns. And that's it. We will never end racism this side of Christ's return. And some people use that as an excuse to just dismiss it and not do anything about it. And that's an equally wrong response. Like you and I as Christians being made one, united together in Christ, should be deeply moved when division 
uh, spreads around us, and we should care when injustice happens. And so while we will never end it, we absolutely have a responsibility to stand against it and say, this isn't okay. And we stand with those who are the victim and are experiencing injustice. And how we go about standing with them, there's a lot of wiggle room for figuring that out. But we have to stand with them. Next question. My daughter is gay and married to a woman. They've been together for a long time and both are kind, compassionate, generous people. My very religious family prays they'll change their ways before the Lord returns. It makes me sad when they say stuff against them. So how do you feel about gay love? Do you think God finds gay love disgusting and loathing? Does gay love outrage God? You were not joking I'm, about tough I questions. Told you. Homosexuality is personally one of the hardest things for me to deal with. And I don't mean those people are the worst. What I mean by that is there's a whole lot of pain surrounding sexuality that is often unaddressed. There's pain for those who recognize their sexuality and choose to honor what scripture says. And the church has not done a very good job being supportive and loving and caring. And there's a whole lot of pain for those who want to follow Jesus and they also want to be true to how they feel and and what's going on inside of them. And like this woman, choose to marry another There's a lot of pain surrounding that decision too. And so when it comes to homosexuality, I don't have a blanket answer of what should we do or how do we respond. I think there is an uncomfortable truth in scripture that it is God's desire for a man and a woman to be together. But that answer doesn't address the pain and doesn't help us serve and care. And so I would say that because our culture and even the church spends so much energy telling gay people how sinful they are, maybe you and I need to start by saying, this is how loved you are. And maybe that love, there's a place somehow for that love to not say, I endorse and I support this. And maybe there's also a place where it's just not our job to say. And we can just love and Maybe at some point there will come an opportunity for a conversation. Maybe not. So if this is your daughter, um, here's what I'd say. If your family is treating them with a lack of love, know this. Your sexual identity does not define whether or not Jesus has died for you. Period. So even if you're in a marriage and in a relationship, Christ is still enough. So let's point people to Jesus and maybe along the way he'll be the one to convict them. And maybe he won't and he'll work that out in the end, okay? If you would like to talk more about what to do, I will gladly wrestle with this question because it's one I, I deeply struggle with on a regular basis. How do we love well in a culture that embraces something that is not scriptural? How do we do that? I don't know. Last question, I'm pretty sure. Technology has allowed almost anyone to easily access the Bible and do their own research for themselves. Before that was the case, it was mostly leaders in the church who were able to access the Bible and preach it to the masses. 
Do you know of anything that the church was taught in the past as truth that we now know is not the case? Oh, yeah. Uh, tons of things. Have you ever heard of the thing called the Reformation? Quite literally, that was a handful of guys that were like, hold on, what you're saying isn't quite true. Specifically, the, the church was saying 500 years ago, hey, if you pay us, we will get you out of hell. Like, we, you can buy indulgences was the word, which is basically the more money you give us, the more get-out-of-jail-free cards you get. And this guy named Martin Luther stood up and said, hold on, that, that's not true. Like, grace has nothing to do with what you can do. Grace is entirely free. And it really made a few people mad. They tried to burn him at the stake. They tried to do a lot of other terrible things. But yeah, the church said, that's not true. Let's go back to what scripture says. Um... I think the church is fallible, which means we're imperfect. I also don't think that we should lean into, well, the church is broken, so I'll just reject everything I don't like. Maybe there's a balance in a place of things have been misspoken. Even with the issue of homosexuality, there have been some in the church that have said, you cannot be gay and be a Christian. And I simply think that anytime you add a qualifier before being a Christian, you're missing the point. You can absolutely be gay and be a Christian because Christ is more than enough. So yeah, the church has erred at times. And at the same time, more people having access to it doesn't mean we're going to be more right in understanding it. Because if every one of us read the same verse, we might come up with something very different. So how do we know what's true? That's where there's some balance of the church can be helpful, what has been said and what was meant, and what was intended, and what has been wrongly said, that we should go back to the original meaning. So if there's something specific you're wondering about in the church, I'd love to talk to you, and I might have understanding and answers to help you out, and I might not, and maybe it's something we should study more together and figure out. I refreshed just because I've missed a few the last few weeks. Fallible. And there was another um, one that came up? There was another one. So this one's from a six-year-old. We're ending, ending with a six-year-old's question. Oh, boy. Um, it's anonymous unless you tell us you're a six-year-old, you know? Like, yeah, there's only a handful of six-year-olds, okay. so. Uh, <laughs> anyway, why are there no more prophets today? Dang. Um, there are prophets today. They just look different. Uh, when we think of prophecy, we often think of somebody standing and saying, this is what will happen in the future. But prophecy in the Old Testament and the New was more than just telling what will be, but also telling what is. So somebody speaking the truth in an encouraging manner could be considered by some the gift of prophecy. Because if you read in 1 Corinthians, Paul, he actually writes, like, I wish that every one of you spoke in tongues, but even more important than that, I wish that you all prophesied. Not everybody does, but I wish it for all of you. Because prophecy is intended to encourage and build up and speak into others. So while we don't recognize prophets in the sense of like, this person is infallible. You know what they did with prophets in the old who were wrong? They stoned them to death. So if you want to claim prophecy, make sure you're right, okay? Um, but for every one of us, we can still encourage others and speak the truth in love, which in many ways can be prophetic. This is what God is doing and saying right now. So, as a six-year-old, if that didn't answer your question, <laughs> sorry. I'm really good at answering for adults, but six-year-olds. Um, there are still prophets, but not in the same status of those before, because we don't have to stone them if they're wrong. All right? 
unless you want to, then no, I still don't encourage that. <laughs> so is that the last That's one? That's the last question. Awesome. Uh, there were some heavy questions today. So if any of these were your questions or sparked more questions for you, uh, feel free to text them in even later today or, or send them to us. Um, we'll do our best to respond next week or maybe even midweek if something comes in later today to say, we don't have all the answers, but we're willing to walk with you through the questions. Receive this blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he look upon you with favor and give you his peace. Amen. Have a good week. Thank you for listening to one of our Sunday morning messages. If this message has made an impact in your life, please let us know. Simply fill out the Contact Us page on thepointknox.com. And if you'd like to be a part of supporting The Point Ministry, simply go to thepointknox.com forward slash support. Don't hesitate to contact us or join us in person every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. We pray this message has an impact in your life or at least makes it easy for you to connect with God where you are.